Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Wild Runners podcast. Uh, it's Dan taking the lead this time, which is a very rare occurrence. So, um, Colin, how's it going, mate? Yeah, yeah, all, all good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. Can't complain, still getting their miles in, training yeah. hard, and yourself? Uh, feeling a bit broken today after the workout team group had me doing. It was a, it was a, a tough old nine and a half miles with... Well, nearly 800 exercises thrown in for good measure so yeah I'm, I'm feeling it perfect training for the spartan season coming up mate definitely uh yeah we're um we've got a, a pretty good guest today i would say wouldn't you colin yeah definitely definitely really been looking forward to this one and hence why we've kind of kept it hush hush in terms of the normal questions sending in because we wanted this guest all to ourselves yeah so um I personally had the absolute pleasure of climbing Killy and um, getting a couple of world records along the way with with this guy. And, you know, I remember sitting at dinner and hearing his stories and I thought, you know what, this is one inspirational guy. He's had a life full of adventures. So um, excited to introduce you all to um, Ian Adamson. So, hi, Ian. How are you doing? Hello, Dan. Hello, Colin. I'm uh, doing. I'm doing really well, thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be on your podcast, and really good to see you again after playing around at altitude in Tan, Tanzania. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was that was one hell of a trip, wasn't it? It was a good one. Yeah, I've done a lot of uh, many adventures in the past almost fifty years, and this was a good one. This one was right up there uh, in in many ways. Yeah, what was your favorite? parts of the um the tanzania experience oh gosh uh got end to end was fantastic the organization was spectacular we didn't know if we'd pull it off to be honest it was it's kind of complex but the um the bonding the the human element is the really is the real kicker because going through those quite long and extremely challenging um journeys where everyone suffers no matter what they say or how they look, everyone's suffering, pretty high level. Um, it, it bonds everyone and it's, it's stunning, creates a community and it's very fast. When you think about spending 24-7 with a relatively small group of people, I think 50 for us, plus that's not including our guides and porters and the vast amount of support. Um, I think everyone at this point, oh, I know for sure in, with experience, we're all lifelong friends now. That's how it works. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible to get so many people from different countries. And I mean, from my own experience from events, there's normally at least one person in a group who upsets other people. And there was none in this group. And I was absolutely amazed by that. You sure it wasn't you? No, I was one of the quiet ones, mate. You know me. <laughs> Keep myself to myself. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's, it's absolutely right. And one of our colleagues, uh, Dave Ashley, has been he's on his seventh summit now. Um, he, uh, he's been telling us stories of some of the friction that occurs in even much smaller groups. And that's, that would be normal. But this group is, as you said, Dan, was spectacular. I think there's a reason for it too. I think that when people are willing to try something new, like this was a first time thing and no one knew if it was possible it going to almost 20,000 feet and then doing an obstacle course at almost, 19,000 feet and this is all extreme altitude um if you're willing to give it a shot it says a lot about the person and i think everyone to a person in this group 
were those people, which is why 50 people could come together and have an absolutely spectacular time. It, it won't be repeated, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm certain of that. But you never get that, that exact um, harmonic convergence of personalities and characters at the same place at the same time doing something like that. It's just, it just I don't think it's possible. It's, it's diminishingly small probability that it could ever happen again. Yeah, I, I think part of it as well is because it was such a long time from people signing up. And then with the pandemic as well, and a lot of, I know some people couldn't even make it there because of the pandemic, yet the few that made it were like adamant, we're going to get there no matter what. And I think that showed Sean through the whole team. Yeah, it was a, it was a, for most people, it was years. That journey was actually years and it culminated in a couple of weeks um, on the mountain. But regardless, it'll always be a fantastic event, no matter what, no matter where or what, it will always be stunning. The first one of anything, like the first eco challenge, the first name of first, the first tough guy, they're all, they there's something really special about them. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, so, where did your journey start, Ian? Because you've been doing this for quite a long time now, your adventure racing, <laughs> haven't you? Probably started with my grandparents. Um, my uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was Scottish and he played for Scotland as a young man in football and then immigrated to Australia also as a young man and then ended up heading up the Australian Soccer Football Federation. So he was an NGV president. Um, and I didn't, I mean, it was only recently I realised what he actually did because I didn't know that much about sport governance. Uh, but he was always surrounded by buddies from other sports like marathon olympians and it was kind of the environment i grew up in and my grandfather was uh extremely passionate about sport so that sort of rubbed off uh, my father uh, was a national level cyclist so that sort of it was sort of in the family thing my brother and sister were way more talented than i was as athletes i was just a lot more pig-headed about it <laughs> 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 which really means endurance. I, I guess when you put it in a sporting context, it's, it's basically about endurance. I just wouldn't give up. Um, and then uh, that led me into uh, all sorts of sports. I was a bit of a, uh, a, ping, a pinger, meaning I would kind of bounce between sports because I wanted to do everything. So I played soccer, football um, for, from about six to 18, quite passionately. Became a ref and a coach. Uh, but then went into other things and it was everything that you do as a normal you know, school person going through school, through primary school and high school and everything. So it would be, I did track and field and swimming and pretty much everything, uh, but got quite into sailing. Um, actually got a bronze at a world cup in sailing, strangely. Um, and then into canoe and kayak in a really big way um, at university and then got a blue award for that, which was quite nice. Won the university champs, got an Australian canoe and kayak team, later the US team. Um, so that, that went quite a long way um, and got some medals at world level. But that's, that was team racing and I had the Olympic dream. So I kept pursuing that. But you can't do that if you keep bouncing around sports. And that was everything for me, like cycling, sailing, running, triathlon, you name it, I was into it. Um, Adventure racing actually became the thing that made it really good because 
adventure racing is for people who generally pretty good at most stuff, but not necessarily spectacular at any one thing. Um, having said that, uh, as the sport developed, it was the specialists who then diversified who got to be the best. So, you know, later in that journey, um, it it became a very wealthy sport, adventure racing, which is where I ended up for one reason or another. And that journey for me started in 1984 uh, when I was doing other sports. And I was pretty average, bad even, like mid-pack <laughs> adventure racing when I started as a young man. Um, people then who were doing really well were Olympians. They were like really good Nordic skiers and you know top top 10 in the world kind of athletes. And they were really good. Um, so mid-pack was still, I guess, okay, but still mid-pack. Uh, but over many more years, so about 10 years later, I kind of hit my stride, but still working at it. So about a 10-year training is what it was. And you need about 10 years, to be honest. Yeah. That's, how you, that's how you get to, any, to be good at anything. It's about 10 years if you really work at it and work hard and consistently. Just total coincidence. Um, the... Los Angeles Times wrote about the Ray Gawaz, which was first held in New Zealand in 1989. So French race, mostly French teams, a few New Zealand teams, the Kiwi teams won, of course. Um, uh, John Howard, actually with Steve Gurney and Anna Keeling and a few other people, um, they won the first raid. And that really kicked adventure racing into the international sphere. It had existed already in quite a few countries, uh, probably the first of the modern version was the Carrymore um, International Mountain Marathon, which is, as you guys know, is British. That was truly an adventure race. Uh, is, I should say, navigation, carrier stuff, you know, crazy things. They just didn't have the other sports. And adventure racing kind of goes in and out of that constantly. Over the 50, you know, 60, 70 years now of modern-ish adventure racing, um, it tends to cycle through... Uh, solo, pairs, teams, lots of equipment, no equipment, lots of sports, one sport, two sports, through, I mean, just cycles through that stuff. Distances, uh, complexity, the most recent, the last 10 years or so have been mostly expedition, very long, complex, expensive things. Uh, prior to that, there was a huge diversity in the sport. Sprints were the most popular, sprints being a few hours. And there's these really strange evolutions that happen within these kind of multi-sports, whether it's biathlon, triathlon, pentathlon, decathlon, septathlon, you name the athlon. There's lots of multi-sports that kind of, they kind of weave between things over uh, decades or centuries. Adventure racing, strangely, at least in the United States and a few other countries, in the 2000s, sprints became popular because they're really accessible. And they just started dropping stuff to make them more and more accessible. So today, an expedition race will have you know, something with boats and bikes and navigation and other things. Um, but to make it really accessible, you've got, to, you've got to reduce the cost and make them more accessible. So in the, in the 2000s, what happened was they kept, they kept slicing sports off um, and the races got bigger and bigger and bigger and and shorter and shorter and shorter. And eventually they would be down, they were down to like a few hours um, with thousands of people trying to sign up on these big national series of national television and prize money. And it was huge. 
Uh, and there were multiple series like this. And there were probably 50 teams in the US alone that were full-time professional teams because it was a well-moneyed, uh, very accessible sport. Uh, the longer races were still there too. But in the, in the short races, as they kept cutting stuff out of them, um, they had started introducing man-made obstacles in the, in the 1990s. And that became quite prevalent. So, you know, exactly like you'd seen in OCR today, walls and crawls and carries and lifts and ropes and rope climb. I mean, all the same stuff, nets, all that stuff was there. Um, the, as they started cutting sports out, eventually there was a race called Muddy Buddy, which was huge in the time. It went for about, it was about 10 years where it was absolutely massive. And that got down to two people with one bike and lots of obstacles. <laughs> so it just kind of went like that. And then eventually they just dropped the bike altogether. And then you just, what do you have when you drop the bike? You got an obstacle course race. So most people don't know about that. A lot of people think about tough guy. That truly was the first modern OCR um, along with survival run in, out of Holland, which was around the same time. Most people don't know about survival run, but all these odd things kind of weep together. And then, of course, there's the military pentathlon obstacle course race, which um, obstacle run, technically, that's been a formal international world championship competition since 1946. And there's, I think, these days, and it's been run ever since 1946. People see it on, on the internet because it's really fun to watch. It's that 500-meter course that kind of zigzags. And I'm, sure, I'm sure most people have seen it if they're into OCR because they get tens of millions of views on those races. And there's a, like 30 or 40 countries compete every year at SISM. That's the International Military Games on that course. Super fun to watch. So all these things kind of all come together and they come in and out. And, but uh, so the very, very, very long answer to your very short question was, that's part of my story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your training schedule must have been full on for, for years to get. So you said it took you 10 years to get to the level you wanted to. Uh, what kind of like, what inspired you to to put all that time and dedication into it? Well, I, I'm sort of compulsive and I, I had the Olympic dream. I really wanted to go to the, the, the Olympic Games and got to the X Games, got gold, silver, and bronze medals there, not the Olympics, but still good. Um, and I thought it would be kayaking. So I made national teams on, for a couple of countries, but I was, wasn't fast enough. Uh, and that, that led to world records in distance kayaking, but not, um, not, um, not, not the stuff that's in the Olympics. And they actually dropped marathon out of the Olympics uh, before I got good enough to make a team. And when I, got, I good, when I got good enough to compete at world level in distance, like marathon kayaking, the, they had dropped it from the games and the Australian team was winning everything. Actually, one of my teammates in event racing, John Jacoby, won four world marathon champs when I was racing and I just, I couldn't even get on the team. Like uh, being fifth in Australia, maybe fifth in the world, still couldn't make the Australian team. So it was tough. Oh, wow. um, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, that, that sort of led to adventure racing anyway. Um, and then I was, uh, I moved to the US in 1991 from Australia as a biomedical engineer, uh, design engineer in the heart pacemaker industry. So I moved to the US for a temporary three-year visit to help move factories to Miami Lakes in Florida uh, from Sydney, Australia. There's a, the company had bought General Electric's pacing division, which was quite big. They were buying companies. They got to be a very big company. And I was there to support the manufacturing and 
or the pacemakers. And that I had an ulterior motive though, because the headquarters were actually in Englewood, Colorado, which is quite close to Boulder, Colorado, which is where a lot of the, my colleagues from triathlon had ended up because they were pro triathletes and they were racing and spending their summers in Boulder. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. <laughs> so my goal was to training hub, isn't it, Boulder? I think. Oh my <laughs> gosh, it's yeah, out of control. Yeah, just any sort of endurance sport. Everyone seems to flock flock there for at least a certain part of the year just to train there. Yeah, to this day, OC obstacle course athletes, mm. lots of them, Rhea Koval, um, on and on and on. There's a lot of them in the Boulder area. So you, you'll see this, it's not uncommon. And endurance sports in summer, um, there's national cycling teams and most of the triathletes, the best triathletes are there. They live there actually. Moved, a lot of our neighbours are current and former world champion triathletes. Um, and in the day, adventure racing. Yeah. So the Rocky Mountains were a hub for adventure racing. Our team is based out of Colorado. We had uh, uh, we had lots of, lots of world champions actually. Um, and our adventure racing team, that's how good the sport got back in the 2000s was that you couldn't really compete unless you were a truly world-level athlete. And we had Mike Closer, he was world mountain bike champ and world orienteering champ. Michael Tobin, world exterior champ, world orienteering champ. Oh, gosh. Um, Monique Morel, world exterior champ. Uh, Sari Anderson, she was world winter exterior uh, world champ. And then there was Danelle Ballinger. She was world champion, mountain running, sky running, trail running. Um, we raced with Richard Usher a fair bit. He was the fastest triathlete from New Zealand in history in, in Ironman. He did a 750 or something or a 749 in uh, Germany, I think. So we had uh, Dave Weens. He beat... Um, he, <laughs> he beat Lance Armstrong. In fact, we raced in Sweden in 2006 as world champs. He, he'd just come off beating Lance Armstrong uh, at Leadville 100 mountain bike. And uh, Dave had, had always won that race. And he just, he beat, uh, he beat Lance, who was pretty good because he was making a transition to, the, to mountain biking. Flew to Sweden, got stuck in London. No, got diverted from London. There was a bombing. Remember that, 2006? Yeah. Yeah, there was a bombing. Dave yeah. was flying to London, but he couldn't. So he flew through somewhere else. And he got to the start line like with his bags, unpacking his bags, running to the start line pretty much. Uh, and we had to fake his, uh, <laughs> we had to, to fake his, his, uh, his practical tests. He'd never ascended on a rope. Um, wow. And that was me and Richard Asher and Dave and Monique Morel. So everyone was a world champion in something. But we got, we were, like, I don't know, day four on the race and Dave was going up, ascending ropes into a cave and he'd never done it. And so I was there pretending to futz with his gear, basically showing him how to do it while Richard and Mona Monique distracted the race officials. And he was great. Dave was amazing. Um, so he, he scampered up the rope like he knew how to do it. And uh, we, uh, we ended up uh, winning, which was quite nice. Nice. I'm just conscious because I think some of our listeners might not know what adventure racing is. Because um, obviously, you know, um is there like a definition that you can give just to sort of sum it up yeah there there sort of is um it's it's a multi-sport um it varies from sprints to what we call expedition so it's anything non-motorized so just imagine multi-sport where multi-sport means any sport 
uh, and variously, typically it's going to have things on a, you know, in a boat, on a bike, on foot, navigation, typically. It doesn't have to, but that would be typical. Expedition races these days are very long. So expedition means it's sort of a journey. So you like cover vast distances uh, under uh, map and compass. And the obstacles are very big. So they're just really big obstacles, uh, meaning in, on the long end of the sport. So on the long end, the expedition end, uh, the obstacles would be mountain ranges and oceans and rivers and forests and mm. stuff like that. Uh, and it can include all sorts of things in the race. They've, oh gosh, uh, horse, horses, um, buffalo, camels, elephants, you know, actually with the, as part of the team at some point. Wow. Um, mountain biking is not uncommon, road biking sometimes, inline skating, skiing, ice skate, uh, you know, distance ice skating, all sorts of stuff, mountaineering, rope skills are quite common. Um, so it's a bit of everything and it's truly a journey. Uh, was in, the modern sport was invented by a French guy, Gerard, Gerard Fusy, and his inspiration came from the around the world yacht races and parody car and kind of things like that. And he just thought, hey, do it, do it under your own steam. Um, and the, originally the races were well, in, the, in 89 when the, the first big expedition race, races came along. As the Régoire, it was, um, which by the way means challenge of the French, but coincidentally also the Cigar, <laughs> who I believe was a sponsor. Okay. So it was a it was a, a dual use of the name uh, with monetary benefit for the race. Uh, so it was a journey of in those days five men and women working together, supported by a two logistics crew, two people logistics, so seven in total. These days, it's basically four. That was that was that was created by Mark Burnett of you know Survivor fame um, for the Eco Challenge. He had a license from Raid, and then he sidestepped the license by reducing the team to four, unsupported. And that's what you see in things like the Eco Challenge. When they had the last, most recent one was 2019. That was the tenth Eco Challenge. Mm. Started in 2000 in 1995 as a license from Raid. Had the same rulebook and everything back in 95, uh, that, that quickly gained traction and that really kicked adventure racing into a global phenomenon for about 10 years. Um, and the prize money was super solid. We, uh, I was involved as an athlete and then as a director on the Outdoor Quest. We, we doled out uh, 1.6 million in prize money. Um, the Primal Quest, they kicked in 1.8 million, I think. Between all the races in a good year, you could... We would be winning three hundred thousand, um, and that would be doubled or tripled with sponsorships and endorsement. So our, our team was fairly financially solid <clears throat> uh, over at least ten years. That's gone south. Um, that went south rapidly when the big big money disappeared because it takes money, <laughs> yeah. and that takes broadcast. So the TV shows were super fun. Um, and uh, that, that helped the sport stay really healthy and vibrant for quite a long time. OCR really kind of took over. So obstacle course racing took over for obvious reasons. It was about how many people can you get through a course and how accessible is it? Because adventure racing at the long end is really not accessible. Very expensive. Teams might do one race a year unless they're sponsored, which they're not uh, typically. But OCR, you can do one weekend. <laughs> So pretty much all the same skills. In fact, here's some trivia for you. <clears throat> the first Spartan world champion woman was 
Jenny Tobin, and she was an adventure racer. Oh, wow. Okay. First Tough Mudder, world's toughest mudder winners were adventure racers. Makes sense because they, they knew distance and multiple skills. So they did quite well. Um, transitioned into it. Transitioned into it. And that was actually quite common. So in the early Spartan world champ days, there was a whole boatload of adventure racers. In fact, Joe DeSena was an adventure racer. He did the Eco Challenge. Mm. Joe DeSena, I, put a, I produced his first race with uh, Don Mann and some other people in 2001, Expedition BVI, uh, Expedition Stage Race in the Virgin Islands with yachts and beautiful palm trees and nice beaches and <laughs> scuba diving and all sorts of fun stuff. So Joe, Joe was a financier and he had a corporate travel company, incentive travel basically for his clients. So he said, hey, can you, can you do this in the BVI? And we said, yeah, sure, not a problem. So that was his first foray into events that evolved over time to become peak adventures and then the death race and then Spartan race. So that ultimately, that actually came out of adventure racing as did many other things. Most, most people have no idea about how closely linked they are. Yeah, I, I would never have guessed that at all before. Yeah, and if you watch the, watch the shorter races from the 2000s, lots and lots of man-made obstacles, just like you see today but other stuff too. I think, I think I'm going to be going down a uh, YouTube rabbit hole at some point in the <laughs> oh, near future. A whole, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's a whole world in there that, uh, well, it's generational now. So you know, people who are racing those days now, their kids, some of, the, some of them in the Eco Challenge in 2019, it was their kids racing. Yes, because I, I watched it on Amazon and I, I can remember that there was was it a father and a daughter who were in a team yes, together? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I forget their names. Like, so, but yes, yeah, I mean, there, there were. That was brilliant. There, were. There, there was a few of them: uh, father, son, father, daughter, uh, uh, generations. So the princes. Uh, Vivian Prince won in 1996 in our team in British Columbia. Her son came third in 2019 uh, on an Australian team. Oh wow. Gippsland or something. How about that? Yeah. So, yeah. Runs in the family, apparently. <laughs> yeah. well, I think it's got to, hasn't it? That sort of thing. Just, you know, the, the bug for it, you know, I think it's like anything. If you see your parents doing something that, I mean, let's face it, to a kid, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Just seeing, well, you must have had it in, you know, growing up, obviously, you know, you know, people looking up to you, what you were doing, sort of, I can imagine, you know, it looks, it looks amazing. I looked up to a lot of people, actually. I still look up to a lot of people. Um, and the, the, thing that, the thing about Kilimanjaro, so going back to Kilimanjaro and altitude OCR, it's really an adventure race and an OCR all wrapped up in one thing because it's the journey and it's a long one and it's a very difficult one. Like summiting, summiting these mountains is not trivial, as Dan well knows. These are very difficult things to do. We had incredibly proficient, um, knowledgeable leaders of that uh event which was dave pickles um dave he, he's he's spent decades i think it was his 50 49th or something summit of yeah, that mountain yeah, he's, he's done it for years hasn't so, he yeah he, he knew how to get people up there without killing them and i i don't mean that lightly because um if you if you dig out the data from mount kilimanjaro but so many people go up it's such a well-traveled mountain and it looks benign anything but on average i believe it's about 34 deaths a year on that mountain 
people think about Everest and now Kili is the most deadly mountain. And it's a lot to do with people thinking they can just hike up and they'll be fine and they won't. <clears throat> you see the signs everywhere. You also see, Dan, do you remember coming down uh, from Barafi camp? Did you see all the, all the, uh, the, the, Stretches with the monorails, yeah, but like shopping trolleys, didn't they? Did you, did you count them? <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah, I counted more than fifty. Oh, really? Yeah. So they have these these stretches uh, staged all the way up, down the mountain, and I was looking and going, "Why are there fifty stretches here? They've got to use them. I mean, yeah. there's it. They can't just be randomly sitting there." And so I was kind of prodding some of the locals, and finally I got some guy who would talk about, it and he said. Yeah, they use them all the time. You know, they're constantly carting people off the mountain, constantly. We were carting our own guides and porters down or sending them down because uh, up at uh, 18,800 feet, which is uh, over 5,000 metres, well, well over 5,000 metres, the uh, people can't work up there very long because you can get start getting pulmonary edema, which will kill you, and then uh, cerebral edema, which will kill you really fast. So they call it heap and haste, but we, we were sending staff down quite frequently because they were getting sick. Um, and if you don't get them down fast enough, they will not survive. I believe Dave Pickles has never lost anyone um, from his fault, at least. So we were in great hands, capable hands. It seemed like drudgery had Dan going up, sometimes thinking, why are we going so slow? And then you yeah. realize, that, <laughs> okay, when you get up there, you go, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was at summit, wasn't it? The leaving at one o'clock in the morning and I mean I, I don't know about you but I can just remember it just taking what seemed like forever to leave base camp to get to there and then just seeing that sunrise and then it's oh. like I don't know about you but my spirit just went through the roof when I saw that sunrise and that is mountaineers have you been up high mountains before uh, I, I did Killy a few years ago oh, okay. yeah didn't see a sunrise like that though yeah, we hit the time of year. It was uh, it was stunning. It's um, you can see why people get addicted to climbing mountains because you get to that point. The, the to get there, it's truly months and months and months to do it properly. By the time you get there and you get that three minutes of well, actually it's about twenty minutes on Kili, but the twenty minutes of sunrise, it's um, indescribable. You absolutely you cannot put it in words. Even video or pictures doesn't really give you a sense for what it is. Yeah. It's even like like your background. When I look at that, to me, you know, it reminds me of like a, a, a space scene, really. That's what I think. And, you know, to think that we was actually in there, it's just incredible. So anyone listening, I, I strongly encourage you to, <laughs> if you want to climb a really cool mountain, um, get a good guide and go up Killy. It's one of the better ones, one of the best. Other ones, you can go high on like Everest, which is absolutely fantastic, but you're not on the top. Or if you go to the top, it's a whole nother set of requirements and expense, like $70,000 expense kind of deal. Um, but clearly you can do for a very moderate price uh, quite safely. And if you're thoughtful about it and the, the client, you go through so many climate zones because it's the, it's the world's highest freestanding mountain. So it goes from basically African plains at a few hundred feet through temperate rainforest and alpine tundra and jungle and it goes through all these amazing things and so the journey up is by by itself is amazing and then summiting is 
just stunning because, it's a, because you are literally at the top. So it's the 360 degree view, which is quite rare in mountains. Usually they're surrounded by other stuff. And this one is not. It's sitting out by itself in the middle of Africa. Well, yeah, I, know, I know it's on Colin's, <laughs> Colin's list today. It is, definitely. Yeah, I've wanted to do it for a long time. So, but yeah, um, I agree with you. I think, you know, if you're going to do it, make sure you go with, do your research with who you're booking with. You know, obviously, because like you said, I think that the problem that they've had in the past is um, companies just trying to get people up and down as quickly as they can do. So obviously, the more people that they get up, the more money that they make. But if you do it too quick, there's a chance you're not going to be coming back down or you're coming down on one of those stretches because you've got to be, it's got to be done slowly. Or, or it'll be simply miserable. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't do it right, you, you might make it, but it's just not pleasant. <clears throat> the way we did this was, for me, was that it was the it was the best high mountain I've summited. And I've summited a few since the 80s. Um, first one was actually uh, Mont Blanc, which is not trivial either. It's like 15,000 feet or 5,000 meters or close enough. Um, I was actually ski guiding out there in 1981. So well acclimated and that was fun, but was not Kilimanjaro. Uh, and then in racing, uh, Cotopaxi. So some of Cotopaxi in Ecuador, that was miserable. Um, and then uh, went through Tibet and around Everest uh, in a Rake Wars in 2000. That was also pretty miserable. Racing's miserable because we were going really fast. So to give you, you know, Dan, to give you context, what did it take us? It was a five-day ascent for Kili, I think. Yeah. Yeah, including all the altitude training we did for it. So when we did, when we were in Ecuador on the raid, we summited Cotopaxi, which is 17 feet higher, I believe. Uh, so about the same. But we did it in, we did the up and down in 17 hours. Wow. Yeah. And it, I have never suffered so much. It, well, I swore I would never go up a mountain again. It was that bad. It was just, it was abysmally miserable in every possible way. Um, but Kilimanjaro was just, it was a luxury tour. It was fantastic. It was just perfectly logistically put on. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, when I first saw it, I first saw it advertised in an obstacle magazine. And I saw that and I thought, there's no way anyone can get obstacles on top of a mountain like that. And you just thought all the logistics were against them. But just seeing them porters carry them obstacles up when we was walking to base camp, I think. And then they stayed up there that night as well. Yeah, so Rob, Rob Edmund and his team, we, had, we were so many people going up, we had to use two routes to go up the mountain. And uh, I, do you remember from Barafi, you could see them on the skyline, kind yeah. of the, the silhouettes of these porters <laughs> carrying the obstacles up, this, up these ridges. And you're looking at them going, holy crap, that's impressive, which it was. We, we truly didn't know if it was possible. One, we didn't know if it was possible to, to get it all done, uh, assembled and um, in place and functional and staffed. That we didn't know if that was possible. And secondly, we didn't know if it was possible to even do the thing once we're up there. And if you remember coming down into the crater, so we summited, came down to the crater, and in the crater, everyone looked like walking dead. <laughs> I was standing yeah. there watching them going, oh, this isn't going to work out well. Everyone's stumbling into tents and collapsing and lying down and just like, oh, boy, this is, this is a bust. <laughs> but then <laughs> as we started getting moving and did the, the world's highest fitness class, 
Guinness World Record. Thank you very much, everyone. Rob and Dave and everyone. Uh, people were starting to get into it. And then um, as we started going into the, uh, into the course itself, which was part of the fitness class, uh, it became apparent that people were getting excited. And then all the porters and the guys were screaming and yelling and cheering. And it became quite a scene. And uh, then it was just incredible that from that point on, it was apparent that it was a truly a successful event and it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the after party was pretty good as well. <laughs> yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, so which leads me on to the next one because we've um, obviously you've had like a really good career yourself, um, been all over the place, and now you're you're the president of World Obstacle. That's right. That had a strange yeah. and unusual evolution too. <clears throat> the X Games in that so. Uh, Adventure racing was in the X Games in 95, 96, and 97. At the time, there'd been this kind of discussion about, well, if adventure racing is good enough for the X Games, it's probably good enough for the Olympic Games. And that's not uncommon to see sports go X Games, Olympic Games. Our team was sponsored by Nike. We were under Olympic sport marketing. So there was some real horsepower behind this idea, at least, that uh, adventure racing could be, could be an Olympic sport. That was the thought. <clears throat> The conversation at that point was amongst the elites of the sport. So the X Games was 12 invited teams, elite teams from 12 countries, basically. Um, we had these discussions about, well, let's, you know, let's, how do we get to the games? How do we get to become an Olympic sport? And but there's only one way to do it. You, you create a national, an international federation. That's how, how it works. But you have to have governance and a pathway of representation for the athletes. So this idea... Um, by 1997, I was thinking quite seriously about it and, and started making the basic moves to create an international federation to represent adventure racing. It all sort of went on ice um, in about two, in 2006. So I retired technically in 2007, but my last race was in 2006. And that was for a few reasons, one of which was there had been multiple very big international series and world championships with tons of money in broadcast and TV. Uh, they had all gone away by 2006. They did not exist anymore. I think the last one might've been 2007. And I saw the writing on the wall and went, oh, well, this is, this is a bust. <laughs> At least for now, we're gonna put this thing on ice and just see what, you know, what transpires. Um, I actually didn't think much about it for until Joe DeSena, um, and a woman by the name of Colleen McManus, who uh, was also on Expedition BVI, lived in the country and helped run the logistics on that side, came up with this crazy idea to make Spartan race an Olympic sport. So in 2014, and I'd been working with Joe on and off and you're still chatting and helping with things, but uh, they said, hey, Ian, why don't you... Um, why don't you see if we can make Spartan race an Olympic sport? So I spent a year working as a consultant and kind of rekindling conversations with old colleagues. And uh, it was obvious, and this is just how the system works, that for Spartan race to become a sport, it would have to dismantle its corporate structure because it can't be corporate, can't be for-profit. Uh, and it has to be, uh, democratic representation for the community um, in a non-profit democratic federative system uh, made up of national federations and their members within each country and you need a lot of them so spartan race 
if Joe wanted to do that, he had a choice. And I, my recommendation was, Joe, don't do that. <laughs> your Spartan race will not exist anymore. You'll, you'll turn it over everything to the athletes, which is necessary for the health of a sport, but not in the corporate context. So the, the, it, would have, it would have completely destroyed what he'd already built. The better solution, and my recommendation, was become Ironman of obstacle course racing, just like Ironman is Ironman and triathlon, right? So you've got triathlon, the sport, and you've got Ironman, the, the corporation. Works, works really well. It works better if they work well together, which Ironman and ITU generally don't. They have sort of sometimes, but they generally don't. And that's not great for the sport. Um, people still do all the stuff, but that's fine, which is fine as they should. At that point, so after saying that, Jay said, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we'll continue on our merry way and become the, you know, the big dominant player in obstacle course racing, which they ultimately did. Um, at that point, I was doing other things, but then I started getting calls from other sports, <laughs> other Olympic sports, saying, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And we hear a lot about this and we see a lot of that. And we see Spartan race and obstacle course racing and Ninja Warrior and all these other things. They're all over the place. How, what, what are you doing? We want to be involved. Was kind of how it went. And I went, oh, well, maybe this thing does have legs. So I scratched my head about it and started getting into the OCR part because I really hadn't been into it. I had been watching uh, and then start, I did a couple and, and then, well, actually I did one. I did the Boston Spartan Sprint in 2015 and went, oh shit, I really like this. This is bad. <laughs> <laughs> We've all done that. We've all done that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, it was curiosity. I was standing there watching it going, oh, this looks interesting. I was actually, I was standing at the start line with uh, Mike Morris, race director for Spartan Race Internationally, and a beer in my hand. So I was drinking a beer. Like, I was not quite a pint, but close enough. So I was drinking a pint. And I was standing at the start with some Olympic colleagues. And we were looking at it going, this is really interesting. And then Mike said, you should jump in. So I downed my beer, ran, ran, ran over, changed my clothes, ran back, which point, though, the, everyone gone off, but I, that wasn't a problem. So I jumped in the race and uh, and then went through and it was super fun and I just loved it and I, I was really excited about it. It was, I had no idea how much fun they were until I went through one and I was just blown away, like how much fun it was. And I was thinking, oh, this is, this is bad. This is really bad. Now I've got something else I want to do and that's not going to work out well. <laughs> so I got back and I've got another beer and I'm standing at the finish line now with these guys. And Mike said, hey, go over. See, there's iPads over there. You can see your result. So I trotted over and I figured out and I saw one, one, one on my results and I'm going, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and this is the end of the first day, right? So like 4,000 people have gone through the rest. And I went, Mike, this doesn't make sense. This, what are these, what does this mean? He goes, well, you're first in your age group, you're first in your, uh, in the males and you're first overall. And I'm going, that's not possible. Come on, I started behind everyone and yeah, but it's chip timed. So yeah, but I've never done one of these before. This is stupid because yeah, but you know, you were a pro and you kind of, yeah. And, and so as it turns out on that day, at least now it was, I didn't win um, because there was another day coming, <laughs> but at that point, huh, maybe there's something to this and I like winning shit. So um, that got me into OCR and ever since I've just absolutely loved it. Like I, you can't tear me away. And then I got into Ninja because that's a whole nother thing. It's just without the running, right? So it's basically the same thing, a little more technical, um, but I sort of got really into Ninja uh, and then we had our world champs in 2019 Moscow, which was huge, 100,000 spectators. It was really big. Uh, and that was, uh, that was 
very much in, in um, parallel and with a lot of crossover with the show. So if you see our um, ninja or championships course, it's a ninja warrior speed course, basically, which means it looks like the TV show, feels like the TV show, smells like the TV show, <laughs> but it's not really the TV show. This is actually pure sport. Mm. But the speed version in the US is a ninja versus ninja, which is head to head very fast. Yep. <clears throat> it's basically that. Or American Ninja Warrior Junior, same thing, very, very fast. Um, unlike the, the, the big competition shows with the million dollar prize, that's failure. Like furthest fastest is what it's called. And mostly, I think only six, no, eight people now, including a guy from Britain, have actually climbed Mount Midori. And that's since 2009. I mean, this taken, it's very hard to do to actually finish the Ninja Warrior. It's quite hard if you think of it, eight, eight people over <laughs> lots and lots of years. Um, and uh, so anyway, so that's, uh, that's obstacle. And that's, that's where it is today. Oh, but there is another full circle, which is a really odd one. World Obstacle um, was granted what's called Geist Observer Status, which means nothing to most people. But if a sport is trying to become an Olympic sport, <clears throat> there's a sort of a regulatory organization. It's the Global Association of International Sports Federations, or GEISF, to mix up a lot of consonants. GEISF. Um, to become an Olympic sport, the first thing you have to do is become a member of GEIS. There's about 330 organizations trying to become international sports. 56, uh, to my knowledge, have succeeded in getting their application in, which is quite hard, which is why only 50 some out of 300 have actually done it. Of those, two in the last four years have achieved the first approval level, which is observer status. So out of the 300 in the past four years, only two have made that. Uh, World Obstacle is one of them. There are 11 observers in the GAFE system, and that includes things like Rugby League. And Rugby League was formed in about 1866 or something. So you can see it's not an easy task, and it's mm -hmm. a long journey. We've, we founded in 2014 and formalized in 2018 and it was the full, there was the adventure racing thing. It was the full circle. It was the thing that went on ice in 2006, where which I was working on the International Federation for Adventure Racing. That ended up becoming obstacle course OCR is actually how we started because of Joe. And again, another full circle because he'd been an eco challenge guy as well. So we, we had this kind of full circle weird thing happen that just because of timing and what people were actually doing, um, we, we started off as an obstacle course racing federation. In fact, the first name we had was the Internet IORF, International Obstacle Racing Federation, was our first iteration. That didn't last very long. Ultimately, we became World Obstacle because, like most other big sports, which would be aquatics, athletics, cycling, canoe, canoe, um, they actually have lots of sports inside them. So, something like aquatics, you'll see you know, there's water polo and diving and high diving and swimming and open water swimming and artistic swimming and athletics has jumps throws sprints marathon mountain running trail running ultra running goes on and on cycling's the same so it's trials mountain biking road cycling track cycling so they all have these multiple things that over time sort of come together obstacles are no different um it's just a it's just a platform to provide representation for the various sports if people want to do it it's up to them of course uh, but that's what the platform is 
And uh, as a nonprofit uh, democratic federative system, all we do is provide the opportunities for the sports to get representation. And for some people, if they choose to go to a very high level in sport, that's where the kind of the Olympic thing comes in. Because a few people, if they choose, might decide they want to go to a games. And if the sport is recognized and if the sport can get medal events, then they actually have a pathway to go to the highest level of sport competition, which I think most people recognize is they would say the Summer Olympics or the Olympic Games is kind of the pinnacle, right? Like you get a gold medal at the Olympics, you're the Olympic champion. That doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, once, the, once that's sort of the long vision. Yeah. yeah. So uh, at World Obstacle then, do you work with, so like in this country, um, we've got uh, UK OSF, they're currently trying to get sort of, um, obstacle course and ninja sports recognised as a sport in this country. So I guess like government's, or grants and funding you know to help grow it do you do you work directly with them to support yes. them <clears throat> yeah so the way the system works is that the international federations members are national federations uk osf is the national federation in the united states in the united kingdom sorry yep. united <laughs> united kingdom so uk osf uh, is is all national governing body it's a whole alphabet soup of language but don't worry about it basically their members are the athletes um, sometimes clubs teams athletes uh, even events can be some sort of level of membership, yep. um, which is really healthy. It's, it's for representation. All it is, it's a way to represent the interests of the sport itself, which is mostly the athletes doing the events, right? So they all need to be involved at some level. Um, the more people get involved, the better it gets, because ultimately, as you just said, there will be on recognition government funding. And that comes out of the National Sporting Authority, which in the United Kingdom would be Sport UK or something. Is that right? Something like that. I think, I think it's Sport UK sport, and then Sport England, I think. Sport England, yeah, Sport yeah. England uh, and the National Olympic Committee. So eventually that's what happens. And that benefits the, um, the community in the sport or sports. So in the UK currently, it's, uh, as you said, it's Ninja Sport and uh, OCR. Maybe Adventure will come in at some point, who knows? Uh, but that's up to the communities. They, they decide what it is. There's no, no one's telling anyone to do anything. It's simply here, here we are. If you want representation and you want maybe someone wants to go to a very high level of competition. Um, and then for OCR, if you look at things like European champs, uh, that's it's quickly becoming uh, aligned with the, um, the, the requirements for sport. Now, this is very different from commercial interests. Commercial interests can have whatever they want. Right? Ironman is commercial interest. So Ironman World Champs, is a corporately owned championship system um, called Ironman. Actually, I think they say Ironman Triathlon World Champs, right? Because it is a triathlon within triathlon space. They are not the sport, they're a commercial interest. Feder federations and associations of federations, I hope I don't lose anyone this one. Uh, <laughs> like uh, European Obstacle Sports Federation is the association of national federation members of World Obstacle in Europe. They put on the OCR European Championships. That's sport. Um, a not sport piece would be OCR World Championships, which is owned and run by an event and merchandising company called Adventury LLC out of New York, Brooklyn, New York. That's not sport. That's a commercial interest. They, do not allow, they don't allow people to vote on what they do. They're not owned by anyone but the owners. There's the unlike sport where the athletes have all the power and say, 
the commercial interests have none of that because they're for profit. So their, their goal is to make money. Sport's goal is not to make money, it's to represent, and it can't actually, can't, it cannot um, exist for its own gains, which is what corporations do. They exist only for themselves. Sport cannot do that. By law and practice, sport must represent the needs of the athletes. Nonprofit um, basically means you can't pay yourself to do it. Uh, it doesn't mean that, uh, quite, unfortunately, quite often nonprofit is also not profitable. <laughs> That's a whole nother discussion. Uh, but ultimately, any, any uh, revenues that are, are realized basically go back to the sport, literally go back to the sport, just basically to fund itself. Um, for the benefit of everyone. So that's kind of how sport works. And the international system is quite big. Um, we have 110 countries now with national governing bodies. And we've got to the point at the international level where we get funded by governments for big championships. So that'd be countries um, and city, cities. And that's really useful because now we get to, like, for instance, this year in, I think, November, we'll have our Asia Pacific champs in Bahrain and it'll be an open, it'll be an invitational. So anyone from anywhere in the world can compete at that event. And it's likely we'll have enough funding to be able to assist with things that people actually need. And this is where the sport gets really interesting. So sport should make sports as in international federations, which represent the communities. Um, the goal is to make the sports more accessible, uh, fairer, that's like rules and anti-doping and stuff, uh, and cheaper. Now you can make it cheaper because you can make reduce risk, which reduces insurance burdens, which reduces price, and also providing government money, um, which can assist with things like, uh, we call it VIK, but value in kind would be something like your accommodation is provided or heavily discounted, maybe get travel assistance. Uh, visas get really easy. Like if you go to Russia, assuming we can have our world champs in Russia this year, which we've been postponing for many years now because of obvious reasons, um, you'll get a lot of assistance because the our Russian National Federation is recognized by their National Olympic Committee and is part of the national, international, national and international sporting system. That's extremely valuable to the athletes because we can reduce costs a lot. Um, so when you go to a federation championships, as opposed to a private one, it's not market value. It's nothing to do with the market forces. If it's a highly sought after event like Adventure's OCR World Champs, it's pretty expensive. But if it's Federation, we try, we try and do the opposite. We try and make it as absolute, like, absolute cheap as ideally we'd pay everyone to go. That would be the ideal situation. Now we can't do that for obvious reasons. Who <laughs> would like to? <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, just, sorry, my scone, but how do you see sort of OCR growing, sort of, because obviously at the moment, I still think it's a very niche sport, you know, I know when, when I say, when people, you know, if on a conference call at work and they see the medals behind me, they're like, oh, what are they for? It's like, oh, when OCR races, oh, what are they? You, you have to say, like, you have a tough mother. That's usually be like the only way they know about it. I mean, how do you think it will sort of grow and sort of become more mainstream so that more people know about it? A recognition. Uh, I've seen it happen in a couple of sports, triathlon. So I was involved in triathlon. And in 96, 
Um, it got an approval as an Olympic sport and then got a medal event or medal events in 2000 in Sydney. Uh, the, the numbers in triathlon had plateaued and were actually decreasing at that point. Uh, and if you look at the data from participation, when, when triathlon got approval as an Olympic sport, the numbers went up. And then when it got a medal event at a Games, they skyrocketed and have remained high ever since. So that, that helps the sport become healthy. We would like that for all obstacle sports, OCR included. COVID has been in all sporting history and, and obviously in our lifetimes has been an incredibly disruptive force in sport. Uh, we believe more than 90% of all event producers have gone out of business and we doubt many will come back uh, just depending on what happens. Spartan race is still there having managed to weather the rather severe storm, which is astonishing. And partly because of that and because of how the whole thing started with Joe DeSena, uh, we, we really want to and are putting in place mechanisms to align sport and brand to help each other. Mm. That's healthy for the sport. It's not at the expense of any other brands, uh, but... It, the alignment at this point is necessary because the all all mass participation sports are in disarray uh, today. Uh, you, we all know this for very very obvious reasons, and the solutions are not as obvious. But one of them is to collaborate, not do, do, uh, divide. Unfortunately, in in adventure racing today, there are vested corporate interests that would prefer to divide what tiny piece of pie there is left because their approach is there's not much left. We want it all. The better approach is what's happening in OCR, which is there's not much left. We'd better work together or it'll all go away, which is the truth. And that includes recognition and uh, support across sport and brand. It's a very healthy way to do it. Uh, it works in some sports. You see it in basketball. So the International Basketball Federation, FIBA, um, works very well with the, the leagues, the European League, the NBA out of the US, they, they work really well together. And consequently, basketball is a huge global sport and is really well coordinated. It doesn't work as well in golf um, or ice hockey or a few other things, uh, but where the sport and brands work together and the leagues and the, all that stuff, that's fantastic. It is really, really powerful. So the goal, our goal is always to collaborate. We're all, our our arms are always open. We're always welcoming everyone in if they want to play. And if they choose not to, it's a choice. That's fine. Um, but I believe, I know, and I've seen by experience that collaboration between everyone is necessary to keep a sport healthy and vibrant and growing and uh, provide all the things that should do, make good professional events that are safe and fair and not too expensive. And that's what we want to do. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. so I've always thought like myself because I've been doing Spartan since 2014 so quite a long time and I've seen it grow and grow and grow and grow but for me I, I would love to see it on TV now I know that's probably I mean Spartan have now got the YouTube channel which is really helpful but it's such, for me I think it's such a difficult sport to show live because it's over vast terrain and everything like that. So 
like with it going into like Olympics and stuff, I I personally would see it more as like a ninja because it's a lot more accessible for people rather than like the the Spartan Beast, for instance, where you'd be running miles. So do you think if it was to go to like all the way to the Olympics, it would just be like a, a head-on-head sprint event or do you reckon they would do all different formats? So, yeah, it's a very insightful um, comment on the sport and what gets shown in games. <laughs> They're driven heavily by broadcast because that's where the money comes from. There's about four and a quarter billion I believe paid by NBC per quad. So every four years, that's something like that um, for riots to globally broadcast the summer Olympics. It's not, they don't have everything. China has a chunk and so there's, there's a Europe has a piece things on discovery under discovery or Eurosports. But the, the point that you're making is, is correct. Um, in athletics, as an example, the most watched thing, actually the most watched thing, <laughs> I believe in all games is the, Men's 100-meter final, which is nine <laughs> seconds, right? So nine seconds every four years. That's really well watched. <laughs> but it's only nine seconds every four years. Um, what you're not seeing as medal events and not seeing broadcast is you're not seeing mountain running and trail running and ultra running and all these other things that people do on mass. And it's a bit like that. So that's exactly the same thing. Uh, we have had six medal events in games recognized by the IOC for OCR already. We had six medal events in the Southeast Asia Games, and we're working on medal events again for the next Southeast Asia Games in 23, and also the Asia Games, which are huge, by the way. The Southeast Asia Games are massive. They have, uh, they might have the most sports of any uh, international games recognized by the IOC. It's the same system, basically. But it's, it's, you go to a Southeast Asia Games, it's the Olympics for Southeast Asia for the 11 countries in that region. So we've already done it, and we have the most watched, most exciting thing that truly got traction in the media, um, you know, television and print and everything in the S Southeast Asia Games in 2019 was exactly what you thought it would be with the 100 metres. The OCR 100 metres, by the way, which is not the same as Ninja. Um, OCR has running, so run obstacle, run obstacle. So they're discrete obstacles, about three metres long. Well, three metre cube frames, right? So three metre frames, three metres long, three metres wide, three metres high, basically. Uh, 10 of those, well, 12 total obstacles. But uh, in that scenario, it's a very fast, very dynamic um, athletic speed race. The current world record is 29.92 seconds for the men uh, and 44 seconds for the women, which if you think about, try running 100 or run 100 meters in 29 seconds. It's, it's a true run. Yeah. Now try and get through 12 obstacles in 29 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you how well developed these athletes are um and watching it is stunning we we were hopeful it was designed for tv basically so we designed it for the games on ptv now it's a standard now there's world records and the polish and the south africans and the filipinos they're all chasing this record um so should uk by the way you should do it i believe actually if you talk to uk osf they have they're working on it it's good because it's a good entry point mm. it's quick it's easy uh, you can learn the skills. It's not particularly difficult obstacles, but they're very fast obstacles. And you see the, it's amazing to watch. We had um, people running down the side of the course screaming, like hundreds of people running down the side of the course when the races are on because it's that exciting. It's absolutely it's fantastic. You saw it in, Pol in the Polish races. The Polish champs in 2020 for their 100 meters, um, it caught... 
oh, it was a huge number of YouTube, of Facebook views. I'm going to say, you need to look it up. I think it was 8 million. Yeah, like a real number. This kind of number, maybe it was bigger. It was a big number. Uh, but that tells you how, how well watched it is. It's like our ninja stuff. So in the ninja end, ninja sport, the YouTube views, views are in the hundreds of millions. For runs of shows, you'll see they accumulate hundreds of millions of views. Individual runs. An individual run on a good show can get 50 million views in the first week. So this is what, this is what uh, broadcast likes, <laughs> for yeah. obvious reasons, because that's where the money comes from. <laughs> and that's where the advertisers say, would you, you say to an advertiser, would you like to advertise to 50 million viewers? And they go, yeah, I think we'd like to do that. I mean, it's, it's the population of most countries. Yeah. So if you think about, Colin, to your question about what happens to the sport, is it, is it a niche sport? Not really. It's not that niche. Not as niche as you think it is. Because inside the sport, you kind of go, yeah, but I just don't see what I do. But what you do may not necessarily be the, uh, what the world sees. So if you say to the, if you go to anyone on the street in almost any country, at least 148 countries that I know of, because that's where ninja stuff is broadcast. And you say, they say, well, what's, what's obstacle? Say, well, you know, it's like ninja or Sasuke or uh, Spartan race or Tough Mudder or something like that. You will have them at that point. I've never been to a country or talked to anyone who didn't in that set of events didn't know what it was depending on the country right or depending on the region it's going to be ninja sasuke tough matter spartan race or obstacle course racing or ocr but most people outside have no idea what ocr means mm. or obstacle for that matter they go i don't know what that means yeah and same with adventure racing like what's adventure racing no one knows what the hell it is it's like eco challenge oh yeah i know what that is or it's like Amazing Race, that actually was another spin-off as a show. The Amazing Race, yeah, they know what that is. Yeah, yeah. going back to what you just said about the like head-to-head, uh, me and Colin are both members of the UK OSF and we've got our own OCR community that we're, we're pushing for everyone to be a member of as well. And I actually had, it was this weekend, wasn't it, Colin, where they had a head-to-head? Yeah, that's uh, head-to-head. The championships, yeah. So they are pushing for it now, which is really good to see. Awesome. Did you guys do it? No, I didn't, unfortunately. There's no, there's, there's no chance I'd be able to keep up with them guys. They are rapid, some of them. But no, it was great watching. It was just done like um, just over the, you know, over Instagram, like on the stories where you couldn't watch it all for obvious reasons, but you could just see like snippets of it. And, I, and every time, you know, you, you know, it's like you get five minutes, you go on Instagram, you see the story come up with our and you end up watching them all to see people going through all these different rigs. I mean, it was only less than a less than a kilometer. The course was it wasn't it wasn't long, but uh, yeah, it was brilliant to watch. And you can just see, like what you just said, with those um, at the at the Asia Games with that hundred meters, you can see that's sort of. The, Unfortunately, I think the big mountain races that you're not going to get them at the Olympics, are you? Because it's not you can't standardise it very well. Uh, it, it's also the broadcasting. You can't fit them into the broadcast time slots. Mm. There's a few things that are long, or there's one thing that's long in the games, and that's the marathon. But that's historic. Mm. It's not going to go away, and you only really it, it finishes in the stadium. So 
it kind of fits their model but the you don't see well you have road cycling the other one long ones road cycling triathlon uh but they're also historic they've been in for a long long time obstacle has been in in olympic games how about that 2000 uh, so 1904 there was the 200 meter obstacle swim okay yep obstacle stuff with swimming between it it's an it's an actual thing today to this day under aquatics it is an actual event obstacle swim 200 meters now it's in a pool with manufactured obstacles but mm. same thing there was also uh, an obstacle course race basically a track race if you look up the historic um photos you'll see people jumping through barrels and they kind of obstacle stuff that was also in the games so people don't know much about the history but the, the history of obstacle stuff is really really long it goes back to france most of these things strangely interestingly go back to france uh, in the 1800s uh, including obstacle course racing uh, parkour mm-hmm. uh, military obstacle stuff uh, adventure racing they all seem to go back to france interesting Okay. But here's, a, here's another twist to it. This is, this is true of many things. Most innovations in most things, including sport, are out of the United Kingdom. Look up the number of um, innovations that have come out of the UK, like jet engines and computers and things like that. But the UK, the UK invents them and then the Americans do them. <laughs> So who took the computer idea and made it commercially viable? Apple, IBM, and Intel, and right? Kind of goes like that. So my advice to the UK people is tough guy, another great example, Yeah. right? Tough guy, truly the first modern OCR, truly. But where did that go? Well, went to the US and got really big and then came back to the UK. Don't let him go. Keep keep your innovations moving. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so any ideas we get done we need to keep them to ourselves so. but you've got to commercialize and that's the trick yeah so there's a whole there's a whole there's a whole other cultural thing which i'm quite familiar with having spent enough time in britain and having a british mother etc is that the cultural approach in britain to a lot of these things is a bit negative so having lived in the u.s based in the u.s for 30 years now their approach is everything's possible all the time and it will happen. And it doesn't, it's not, it's not like that in the UK. It's like, oh, this is this isn't gonna work. There's something wrong with that. Let's find something, let's find a reason that's not gonna work. <laughs> and the the you the the Americans like, oh, of course it's gonna work, even if it's probably not gonna work. <laughs> and they don't care. It's like ah, okay, let's try again. Yeah. And um, Having I mean, said I, that, Altitude OCR, that one is going ahead. And that was that was a complete innovation. When you think about an unexpected thing that just popped up all of a sudden, it's like, holy crap. And Dan, you and I know, having done it, you go, yeah, this one's sticking. This yeah. is absolutely sticking. And now yeah. it's a World Series and a World Series Finals and a World Champs, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Guarantee it's going to happen. And, and you can broadcast it because it has the, the footage we, we caught from Kilimanjaro was not good enough to create a full show because we were so thin on the ground. It's only really two of us shooting. Uh, but the what we did get was pretty good. And uh, yeah, they I'm were sure you're going to rapid, share the videos. Oh, yeah. Those <laughs> Philippine good. runners were just next level. Well, that's, that's sport, by the way. So they that's because of their development program. 
that's what sports should do too, by the way, is develop athletes, youth, masters, elites, everyone. Their development program is super solid. They got a mandate um, for medals at the Southeast Asia Games, which they got, they cleaned up. And then at that level, lots of countries pay big money for medals, big incentive. So in, the, in that case, it's something like equivalent, not dollar to dollar, but the equivalent was a, a house. I think they actually got a house to get a gold, got a gold, get a gold medal, got a house, like a year's salary kind of thing. Um, like a real, real value, huge amount of money uh, for every gold medal winner. So, and that's, that's quite common in smaller countries, Singapore. I think uh, Joseph Schooling got a million bucks and, you know, all sorts of other things. In the big successful medal countries, the US they don't get pretty much get nothing, just the glory of the medal. Yeah. And this is also a sport thing is you rarely have prize money in true sport. It's not about the money. So go to world champs, is there prize money? Nope. You might get a medal if you're one of three lucky people. No finishes medals, none of that stuff. But in OCR, of course, we do that because everyone likes the finishes medal <laughs> and everyone loves prize money. <laughs> Reminding me, so a post show you put on your Instagram uh, with all your medals saying before finishing medals were a thing and you just got all, your, all of your gold gold medals there. I, have n- I rarely keep a finisher medal unless it's meaningful because mm. I came out of the era where you only got a coloured medal. It was either a gold, a silver or a bronze and that was it. But I like medals. I think they're cool and fun and they, they're a memory that, that actually is meaningful to the person. Yeah. Yeah, so me and Colin have actually, we're both stepping up this year. It's going to be our first competitive seasons. So we're, we're doing age group this year and it's going to be quite fun because we're both in the same age group as well. But yeah, I want to tap into, you know, what sort of things should we focus on? Because me personally, I've never been a competitive person. Now, I know you, you said you put in like 10 years of hard, solid work and, you know, it took you that long to get the success you wanted. So what sort of like bits of advice can you pass on to anyone looking to step up? Yeah, it depends on your goals. I had lofty goals. So um, truth is I was a very competitive for my age, whether it was six years old or whatever, um, throughout my life. So the first from six to 26 I competed a lot and I'd say including training we'll put it this way in university I would be up at at 6 a.m every day and I'd kayak for two hours every day then I'd swim at lunch and then I'd run in the evening every day for six years at so five years at university and then when I went to corporate world I did the same thing I'd actually kayak to work and I'd run at lunch so I and I did that for 20 years so I was training, I was, I trained more than I did when I was a professional. I was training 50, at least 15 hours a week and racing probably three or four times a week, which is, that's kind of extreme. I mean, most people, that's ridiculous. They don't have, they've got a family and a job and a life. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're crazy and that's what you want to do, which is what I wanted to do, um, 20 years of that, that'll get you a pretty solid uh, foundation to be able to do stuff. But you don't need to do that. Uh, aerobic development, which obstacle course racing is aerobic, takes about 10 years to optimize it. <clears throat> That's physiology. 
So you need to nibble away at it and you need to run slow to, you need to train slow to run race fast is how it works. This is not, I'm not bullshitting. That's the actual way to do it. There's a whole world of physiology around that. It's building the uh, physical, structural and biochemical um, requirements as a human to be able to support high level aerobic function. Now to say that in much simple terms, is you have to develop your vascular system. So that's actually grow uh, capillaries into the muscles. Uh, You need to build your uh, ventilatory capacity. So that's lung volume, strength, um, and efficiency. So it'd be cardiovascular system. You need to develop mitochondrial uh, efficiency and number of mitochondria. They're the little um, motors in, in your muscles that make the muscles contract. Those are physical things uh, that you have to build and grow. It takes about 10 years to optimize that. And you can only do it when you're fully aerobic. This is where most people make a mistake. If they go slightly anaerobic, so going really hard, right? So you, oh, I've got to train hard to go fast. It works against you. Because if you're not aerobic, you're not developing your aerobic systems and functions. You're developing your anaerobic systems and functions. It's a sliding scale. It's not binary. It's not one or the other. Of course, you're getting some benefit from aerobic development. It's like the CrossFitters, they say, oh yeah, I'm great at endurance because I do CrossFit. No, they suck. Running against uh, a CrossFit person who just does CrossFit, they they suck at at distance stuff. Absolutely suck because they're not developing the aerobic system. They're getting some benefit, which is true. That's what they believe that they're getting great aerobic function. No, Be, be John Alban. Why is John Alban so good? He's a runner. He spent decades building this astonishing running capacity. Why is, why is Ryan Aitken so good? He was a mountain biker, huge aerobic engine, World Cup mountain biker in a world level. Why is Lindsay Webster so good? Skier, Nordic skier, <laughs> yeah. giant aerobic engine. <clears throat> so there's no exceptions to the rule. Try and find a successful uh, obstacle course athlete and you will find a big aerobic engine under the hood. Yeah, it's quite uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, no, I just I was like laughing at Colin because we've both got coaches this year. Um, so he takes a mic out of me because pretty much all of my training is to my maximum aerobic fitness. So I'm running really low heart rate stuff. And Colin's like, you're like the next step up, aren't you, mate? Um, and it's, yeah. so it's quite interesting. When, when I look, I know you shouldn't compare each other, but... I always look at Collins and I'm like, Jesus, he's done that today. And then there's me doing my little, little plodding along. So it's quite interesting to hear you saying about growing your, your aerobic zones. Yeah. There's no, there's no, there's very, there's limited benefit and high risk to doing speed stuff. <clears throat> Save that for the race. The risk there is fine. You you don't mind risking stuff during a race, but in training, you don't want to risk stuff. The risk of running fast with high leg turnover basically is that, you increase forces dramatically, which causes, which is high risk of injury. So you just don't want to do that. Um, and the benefit's fairly low. So you developing a huge aerobic base is, is absolutely necessary. It's actually quite easy to do if you can get your head around running slowly. Yeah, that's the hardest bit I've struggled that's with. very hard to do. Save that for the obstacles, because then you can go nuts on the obstacles. Developing tissue strength and muscular strength is quite quick in comparison to aerobic development 
So you still need the obstacle proficiency. And of course, that'll help you immensely in an obstacle course race, depending on the race. Um, but having, the, having that obstacle proficiency, of course, is one of the beautiful things about obstacle course racing. It's such a diverse, varied sport. You've got all sorts of different things to play at. Um, and including something that most obstacle course athletes seem to ignore or don't really think about very much is their plyometric capacity. And what I mean is, sure, you can run along and then uh, hoist yourself up a wall and flip over it. But if, you, if you're really good with plyometric, so you can kind of bounce it, right? So you can jump. Um, you can get over that wall in seconds as opposed to a minute. And do that a few times and <laughs> you just beat a whole lot of people just because you could jump over something. Watch them in the SEA Games 100 metres. They are barely touching the top of the, the one and a half metre walls. Barely. They basically jump over them. Now that saves you, well, they're going after, you know, they're scraping hundreds of a second out of the course now, but having that ability, if you multiply that over a longer race, it adds up a lot. Mm. Just a few little things like that, like jumping over stuff, whether it's a ditch or a log or a, a wall, if you can jump that stuff, like you can run and be quite uh, elastic and athletic about it, you have a big advantage. And it's the same getting to and through an obstacle the guy next to you, if you're racing against, you're probably racing the next person next to you or just in front of you or just behind you, having that ability to jump into an obstacle gives you a huge advantage. So run along to a rings rig. So you get into the rings, run along. If you can jump up into the rings, most people stop and look and yeah. choose. That's so much time. That's what I found my first race. I was watching people that would stop and look at the obstacle. But I'm always thinking ahead. I'm looking as far ahead as I can to see what that obstacle would be and then what I would do getting to that. What's my step going to be onto that obstacle? That's how everyone should be thinking. If you truly want to perform, is you've got to get it down to the every, ob you've got 20 obstacles and you can chop out. I mean, it could be a minute an obstacle for watching what people actually do. In 20 minutes is a huge amount of time. <laughs> you can run the distance in 20 minutes, for goodness sakes. So just that stop, even if it was 30 seconds, 10 minutes. Holy crap, that's a lot of time. Yeah, I must admit, I, I always stop before an obstacle. So that's train yourself not to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to change my ways. <laughs> minutes, you will get minutes <laughs> by not stopping. Minutes. And how hard do you have to run to get those minutes back? More, yes, faster yeah. than you can run. Yeah. You have to extend your rig so that you've <clears> got to jump before you get to it. <laughs> Watch yeah. what they do in 100 meters. That'll tell you everything. Oh my yeah. gosh, it's getting very exciting in the 100. There's going to be a, an invitational from the Philippines to invite everyone to compete to get the world record. And it's going to, we're working on Guinness for that one too. Because in established sports with standards, you can have, guess what, Guinness World Record. So um, we're going to make the 100 meters a Guinness World Record. And there's already three or four countries really going at it. So UK, get your act together. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get on it. <laughs> yeah. Get on it. <laughs> Have you got any other questions for free and done? Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, are you going to do any more sports in here or are you kind of taking a, a back seat now? Oh, geez. You give, uh, giving your body time to, to relax? Well, I, I really, re I fully retired in 2007. <clears throat> that didn't last very long. 
I mean, no, that's not true. I did. I fully retired in 2007 from, from elite competition, meaning like professional, because I was a professional for way too long. Um, but then very quickly, I got bored. And then in 2010, a friend of mine, Charlie Engel, said I, he wanted me to um, do bad water. Bad water, it's the ultra run in from Death Valley to Mount Whitney, 135 miles, which is, what's that in K, 215K or something. Um, it's quite hilly. It's about 19,000 feet of elevation gain. So it's like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, sort of. Um, but it's over three mountain ranges. So I, I did that in 2010. Um, but just as an age group without much age grouper without much training. And that was fun. That was fun. I came, I don't know where I came, like eighth or something. I don't know. Uh, fastest masters. That was fun. Then I, then I got tempted into doing a, um, Ironman again. I hadn't done one of those for 20 years. So I did Ironman Canada. That was for raising money. That was also really fun. <laughs> and so I kept ticking along and then obstacle came along and I was, oh, this is really fun too. So although I'm retired and I don't do anything, and then I got into the ninja thing and that was super fun. Um, just for like playing on rigs. To answer your question, yeah, now I'm into the altitude thing. I, I yeah. haven't changed. My habits have not changed since I was a kid. I just want to do the next fun thing. And I'll, I'll see a shiny object over on the left and, and off I go. So the altitude, like, that's really fun. Now I'm going to do those for a while. <laughs> yeah. See, but I'm pushing 60, so I need to, uh, <laughs> I need to uh, stay young. Yeah. Are you heading to Everest this year? Yes, I'll go to Everest this year. Yeah. You guys going? <clears throat> no. Um, just financial, really, because quarantine in England ruined me this year. Um, yeah, so... If I, had about money, Morocco? if I had the money, I would. That'd be cheap. Um, Relatively cheap. Yeah, I haven't thought about that one, to be fair. Yeah, I, that's going to be fun too, because that's a continuous uh, obstacle course race, because it's not very, not well, it's relatively low, at 13,000. So it's not, not a particularly high one, pretty high okay. enough. I mean, it's not trivial. <laughs> if anyone's gone to 13,000 feet, it's not trivial, <laughs> <laughs> but it's continuous. Yeah. So it'd be just like, a, like I don't know, Spartan Ultra or something. So just up and down in one day oh, okay. so a different style race so a true ocr style just that very high altitude i think it'll be the highest it will be the highest full out ocr ever in morocco on right near marrakesh so quite inexpensive okay is that this basically. year that one yeah i think it's july they haven't announced the dates but i believe it's in july okay. <laughs> to be after the euro champs you're going there yeah italy that'll be fun well, it's kind of one of those where it's also clashes with a Spartan in England for the series, uh, which has kind of got okay. things up in raw in, in the UK with Spartan at the moment this week. Uh, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of noise in social media about why do they keep putting races on top of each other? They don't. The timeline to get permitting and locations is so long and you're never quite sure when the the approvals will come through that you just don't have a choice. Yeah. Right? So the Spartan is not putting races on top of other races, neither is Eurochamps. They're not, they're not. It's just the way the, the calendar happens to unfold. That happens to be usually strangely, it's normally there's usually a week between the big Spartan races and the Eurochamps. It's almost always happened in the past. Um, yeah. And that can be good sometimes. We're actually talking about an interesting idea. Joe and I talked about this in 2018, which is have a combined champs 
because they're different style races, right? The Spartan Euro Champs is much more running heavy. You know, it's a Spartan race, so it's more running yeah. heavy. It's more like a running, an obstacle run uh, with their specific obstacles. Euro Champs is not like that at all. As you guys know, it's very rig heavy, which is how the sport is. The sport yeah. is very, we, we say four good obstacles per kilometer and lots of rigs because that's really challenges, you know, good proficient obstacle athletes should be doing good proficient obstacles. So having two champs back to back and combining lowest combined time is an overall champion. Those are two different style races. Sort of makes sense. They do an Ironman and Xterra. They're back to back weekends. And if you get the lowest time in Ironman plus, if your time in Ironman plus Xterra is lowest, you get, you get a, an award. So that's okay. the idea is that you combine them and it drives athletes to both races because now you can win more stuff. Yeah. Like the overall European champ, right? Or the combined champ. And that's the power of sport and brand work together and make it bigger and better and more fun. Yeah. See, I kind of wondered whether, because obviously you've kind of explained it a bit better where they obviously get these venues a long time in advance rather than it being last minute. But surely they, there must come a time where Spartan sits down with like European championships say, right, what weekends are you looking to do so we don't clash? Yes, that's on the cards. That's planned. Um, this is happening right now, by the way. We are in those discussions. It's been a very, 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 very long discussion, <laughs> years. Um, and there's a fairly complicated system involved because of the licensing model that Spartan Race uses. So it's licensees in regions the licensees by and large are very friendly with sport and want collaboration in small isolated pockets they are not but generally yes they are very much on side europe for sure uh, ben holler who's licensee comes out of triathlon we interestingly have a common colleagues in triathlons we sort of live in that world for a while and he he completely understands sport understands the power of collaboration and really does want to bring it forward, as does Spartan Corporate now. When I say bring it forward, I mean bring forward collaboration, coordination, and all the things that should go along to benefit the athletes. Because if you, like you're pointing out, if big races clash, you're left there sitting there trying, having to make a choice, which yeah. you don't want to have to make. You don't want to have to choose between your national series and the, and the continental champs. That's silly. Yeah. They should just seamlessly fit together in the calendar. Yeah, so I think for us as well, with like the current environment as well, with travel and stuff, we just don't know what's going to happen. So it'll be a case of stick to the UK this year and then hopefully going forward, things will open up easier for us. That's right. That's actually the same thing at world level. We've, so we've been, <laughs> been trying to put on our, we've been scheduling our OCR World Champs for years now. It was going to be in Sochi in 2019. Then it was going to be, then we postponed again for 20. And then we postponed again for 21. Moved to Moscow. And now we're postponing again to 22. So it's just gone on and on and on. But these are long, complex negotiations involving contracts and international sport criteria like WADA. Um, that imposes on, well, influences our world champs because there's a current WADA uh, sanction against RUSADA so the World Anti-Doping Authority against the Russian Anti-Doping Authority, which expires in November. Um, Russia is a very good place to put on events. They're extremely proficient, well-supported, uh, great environments. They're fantastic, by the way. <laughs> You've got to do a race in Russia. They're absolutely amazing. 
uh, the National Federation there is incredibly good. They have a vast event system with their um, commercial arm, which is Hero League. They put on massive events. They have a run across, I think it's 80 cities and 11 time zones with like 200,000 people in it. That's how big they are. Wow. So they can put on big stuff and really well. So our world champs, <clears throat> assuming we can pull it off, we would like to do it in August. So we're, we're all looking at the calendars, trying to negotiate them, but there's these long contracts um, and commercial things involved and governments and, and committee. And like, it gets really complicated the more, the higher up it goes. And to give you an idea of how complicated it is, if you watch the Olympic news, last year, they announced Brisbane 32. So that gives you an idea of how long these, these um, event cycles are and how complicated they are. The bigger the event, the more complicated they get. So it's a 12-year cycle, basically, to get the approvals. So Olympics, they say it's on an eight-year cycle, but the truth is it's more like a 12-year cycle. And so you just can't pop up a race all of a sudden. And countries get involved. And then when the countries and the governments and the ministries and the Olympic committees get involved, um, and then there's a change of government, that screws things up again. We've had that happen twice now. We were going to have a Pan-American champs in the Bahamas. No, in, yeah, the Bahamas had a change of government. We had all agreements, change of government. And we had the announcements. We had all the Bahamians come over and do an announcement and, and an event in the US and it was all golden. And then the government changed and it all went south. So now what we do is we sit and wait and go, the first question is, who's in power? How long are they in for? Yeah. So if the UK government changed all of a sudden and the Ministry for Sport, the, the sport minister was someone different, he took a dislike or she took a dislike to something, you go, you'd be out in the cold again. That's the level we are now in, in the sport. Yeah, not easy to plan then. Yeah, you just got to be careful and understand, well, COVID really put a spanner in the works because all best laid plans have completely gone sideways for everyone at the international level, at least. <clears throat> and I see lots of noise about, um, it, it's, it's justifiable if you're an athlete, but you hear people saying, it's not fair for the event producers not to give me all my money back right now. What they don't understand is the event producers take the financial risk to put, the on, put on the event and spend a boatload of money doing it. And they're trying to offset their costs with registrations early on so that they can actually bring the event forward but then if the event goes south because something changed that they had was completely out of their control, like a government sanction, like stopping events or whatever happens in COVID, they're left there in debt. So this is why 90% have failed because they, they, they hold a lot of debt to be able to put on races for the athletes and their athletes scream at them when they say, but you've got our money and say, yeah, but we have no, we can't even borrow from a bank to give that to you today. We can, we can, delay it and give you a, your entry later, but the money has been spent. This is a terrible thing for the event producers because um, if you're in customer service in any event and you've already taken registration fees, but then the government cancels it for nothing to do with you, you're left there sitting in debt, holding onto other people's money that is actually gone, that's been spent. I mean, it's a terrible situation. So it's, it's unfortunate and I completely get it from the athlete's perspective because they're going, but what about my 100 quid? And the event producer's going, yeah, but what about my 500,000 quid? 
Yeah. So it's understandable, but if the athletes understood really hit the system and how it works and where the money is gone, it's gone into the supply chain and the supply chain, they can switch it on again if things come on again for less loss. But if they're actually putting on an event and that they can actually bring one, actually deploy the event, this is where Spartan has some sort of genius because they are managing to re-resurrect the events, which is amazing. Um, I would be much, I'd encourage people to be much more thoughtful about what they think about their entry fee and how to use it. The better way to do it is support, continue to support the events by going using that deferred entry for an event because if you don't and the events fail, you will have no events unless you want to put them on yourself and risk your own half a million. Yeah, I think we've had it uh, similar here in the UK because I know we've, had, we've got only four locations this year and a lot of people are shouting like Scotland is one of the, the locations that's been removed. But from what I hear is Scotland had a really poor turnout. So it's not financially viable for them to hire a location, get everything, get the obstacles there and everything else. But all people, like saying, all people think of is their own money and they don't think of the company as a whole. That's right. My encouragement, if anyone believes that the event producers are doing a poor job in managing this, maybe they should put on an event and then, then, then have a comment. Like until you've actually done it, you might not know the complexities um, of the financial burden that the event producers risk. They put a huge amount of risk into these things. You've seen it. I mean, talk to anyone in any space. Actually, your, your guys in um, the, own the farm, the really big permanent location where the- uh, Nuclear adventure- races. Yeah, nuclear races. It's a different scenario, right? Because they, they have a permanent system that's always there. They, it costs them nothing. It's got those. They're already built. It's already paid for. That sits there. That's the ideal scenario. Because nuclear races can switch events on and off without the permitting and the, uh, the building and all the other stuff that all the other event producers have to do. The permitting and the locations and the fees and the on and on and on. And for the most part, if you're Spartan Race, as an example, and you put on a race in Scotland, um, you have to get the venue, get the permits, uh, you probably have to manage traffic, which is now uh, fees with police and emergency services. And the costs are immense putting on events, absolutely immense. And they are not walking away with lots of money. (laughs) They're simply not doing that. (laughs) So it's worth understanding. um, If you guys, if you want to race and you want good races, you should probably support the event producers because they are supporting you. I think also, I think it's how quite a few events that have gone under in this country I've noticed were the ones that were the worst at how they communicated it you know with their customers and just dealt with it for all for all Spartans faults I've always found their communication to be pretty good you know Twickenham last year was cancelled well in advance you're offered a refund you're offered a flexi ticket you know you, you had options all through 2020 they were trying to put races on, you know, in this country. Unfortunately, they didn't, they weren't able to, but it was all communicated. And it's not like they've got, a, you know, these race directors, they haven't got a, you know, red phone to Boris Johnson to get the go ahead. You know, they know as much as what we do. So I think if they are struggling, just keep your your customers in, in the loop, communicate it and then people are like yeah fine you know just make sure you've, you've got the money you can't do a refund i get that 
just keep us in the loop about what you're trying to do. And then, you know, cool. Happy days. Don't just go quiet and run off with the money because then that is a bad taste in people's mouths. You're right, Colin. Transparency is really important. Mm. <clears throat> it's yeah. simply That's communication. <laughs> just if, if you, if the event producers are successful in explaining what the situation is, it's like, sorry guys, this is out of our control, got cancelled because we are not allowed to put on events. Yes, we're taking your money, but you know what? We've spent most of it <laughs> to, to bring you the race that you wanted. Um, it's like anyone else, uh, if you do it for yourself, if someone puts it in a context where they're um, buying something or putting a deposit on something, but there's a they can't get it, I don't know, you buy something on Amazon, right? That so you pay on Amazon and then you get this notification from Amazon, oh, supply chain issue, sorry, we can't get that to you on Monday. It's going to be next Monday. And then, and then the Monday after that, and you're sitting there going, oh, crap. But you're not telling Amazon, you bastards, you took my money and you're not giving me my stuff. No, they've got a supply chain issue, which you understand because it just keeps getting delayed. It's no different. Mm-hmm. The, event, the event system has a supply chain issue and, and cancellations out of their control, just like Amazon does getting you something. So it's the same thing. Of course, it's a probably, well, it's probably not a bigger sum of money, to be honest. I'm sure people are buying stuff more than 100 quid on Amazon constantly. So it's kind of like that. Another piece that most people might see at events is staffing. They run on volunteers. You can't run these events without volunteers because you just couldn't pay that many people to do it. It would be insane amount of money. So I encourage everyone to volunteer for a race. And I believe you get benefits from a lot of good race producers. They'll give you a discount or a free entry or something like that. Absolutely valuable for many reasons. One, um, the races do not run without volunteers. Two, you get an insight into how fucking nasty people can be <laughs> to volunteers. Mm, yeah, Don't do that. They're volunteering their time to help you. So become a volunteer yeah. and then get it firsthand. It'll also give you an insight to how complex these races are to put on. It's necessary. You get great experience. You probably get a financial benefit from it. So volunteer. Be really useful. Yeah. I actually first started off as a volunteer when I started Spartan. So I used to volunteer in the morning and then run for free in the afternoon. And I think when I first started, I used to get like, I got a hoodie, um, like a bag. I got food, water, um, and I just really looked after you. And I think like uh, there was also like dry robes and kit bricks and that. So I assumed back then it, there was a lot more money floating around. But I've noticed the last couple of years they've rained stuff in and it's pretty much just, I say just, it's a free race, but that's still quite a lot of money. But it's, 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 um, it's long hours. I mean, I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go out and doing that but but now me personally i'm going competitive um i i probably i'll I'll go and sit on an obstacle afterwards but when i originally done it it was a case of for a free race for instance and because i love motivating people but i found i was motivating the wrong people because you get the elites and then you get the age group competitors and they don't need motivating and they just ignore you. And, you know, you tell someone they're doing their burpees wrong and they give you absolute hell. So I can see why people don't want to volunteer. And then we've had cases in the UK last year where there was uh, some races that didn't have enough volunteers to, to staff the obstacles. 
and then that's obviously you hear people like in competitive waves just running through and not doing their penalties and then everyone just thinks oh, why do I bother so it's really hard yeah it's a um, obstacle course racing event production is uh, it's on a bit of a tightrope at the moment because um, it gets worse right it's a it's a feedback loop which is a bad one if there's less volunteers the races are not as well controlled so they then people yell at the volunteers more it makes them less likely to volunteer <laughs> and the races go south because not enough people are volunteering eventually they would they simply collapse it's happened yeah. a lot actually so that that was one of the first things that started happening the financial constraints so you're right about spartan race when they were when the races are full they they are profitable it's a good event business when they're full but as soon as they're not full they they just can't afford to do things that they would really like to do every event producer i'm sure, good event producers probably the same they would love to be able to give their volunteers uh, a three-course meal and a dry robe and and a free entry and a four-hour shift and that would be yeah. ideal that the reality is anything but that we saw it in abu dhabi abu dhabi world champs well supported by the government, super thin on volunteers. Okay. Yeah, super thin. And it was no, no fault of anyone's. It's just how it all came together uh, and the current environment. So it was uh, otherwise, you know, the race was super. It was a beautiful location. <laughs> it was an amazing race. Uh, but there's logistical challenges that uh, kind of ding things. And I, I could see it. Actually, I, ch I chatted to the staff and they were, they were being run ragged like not sleeping and just thin on the ground. And that's terrible. So the solution is, if you really believe in your own sport, help the sport get involved with the National Federation and get involved with the events and volunteer, even if it goes after your race. Like, like you said, Dan, sit on an obstacle for a few hours. It's absolutely crucial if we believe our sport can, should move forward and can move forward, which is Colin was your question. Yes, but we've all got to get in there and we've all got to help. It's a thankless task as a volunteer. And actually, that's how the federations are. The federations are run by volunteers. Mm. We get yelled at constantly by the naysayers. Like, what are you doing? And why do you get to do that? So we don't get to do shit. We, use our, we spend our own time, money, and resources to volunteer our time to try and make the sport better. That's what we're doing. And you know what we get thanked? We get for it? We get yelled at just like volunteers yeah. everywhere. <laughs> so we're constantly being yelled at. It's like, who, why do you get to do that? Well, you should do it too. <laughs> That's the yeah. answer. Don't yell yeah. at us. Jump in and help. Mm. No, I don't think you could have said that any better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can be pretty blunt sometimes, and I'm pretty <laughs> blunt about this because I've been suffering. Well, I've been in sport governance since 1984. Yep. So I know the drill. I know exactly how the whole thing works. And it's just an expectation now. It's like, yep, we'll get yelled at for doing good things. The better you yeah. do it, the more you'll get yelled at. That's how it works. Yeah, the thing is, what what do you think they can do to to make it more appealing to the volunteers? Is it just do you reckon the, this is where the federations need to put it out there as such to say, you know, try and get your families involved to come and and do stuff like that? Yeah, it, it, that's right. Uh, get everyone involved because you don't have to be an athlete to be involved. Uh, quite a few. I've, I've been involved in quite a few sports at international level. Uh, quite a few Olympic sports. The smaller sports, the ones with less 
athletes tend to have huge communities around them, the successful ones. So for every participant, there's probably three or four people supporting. Now that's the opposite of OCR. OCR, for every person supporting, there's probably 10 people doing it. So it's a whole different model. And it has this obvious downside where this huge number of people doing the sport have these high expectations because the events have been well-produced by and large over the past 10 years. So they have this expectation. But as soon as something like COVID comes along and, and dings the system and basically tries to submerge it under this flood of, <laughs> of uh, COVID-related impositions, um, the whole system starts to fall apart and actually did fall apart. The whole system completely disintegrated and left a couple of strong... Uh, producers like Spartan uh, and a few others standing and pretty much everyone else went away. But you, we've all seen that. It's no mystery. Mm -hmm. uh, to build the thing back up again, everyone needs to get involved. And I don't mean, I'm not suggesting, I'm saying you actually need to because I believe the sport will be fine, but we do all have to help. Yeah, We've got to volunteer our time. We want to race, we better help. We better help because if we don't, we won't be able to race. It's that simple. 100% agree. Italy, by the way, it's it's the same thing. They are doing an amazing job um, bringing bring the Euro champs to reality. Now, delayed again, two years. Um, same same kind of thing. You know, these agreements with um, the cities and the regions and the, all that stuff is not trivial. So we, we're thinking about doing having a requirement on the on the federation side, things like European champs and Asian champs and whatever, is that the national federations for every athlete they bring on their team, they must provide a certain number of um, people to work the event. Now we can do that as federations because th that's how the system works, right? It's, it's national teams. It's not just anyone signs up and you happen to be from England. It's like, you're actually on the national team. So this is, um, this is a system that we're going to because that is the only pathway you can get to high level competition in, in world sport. You can't put it this way. You can't go to the Olympics um, just by doing Bob's race around the corner. Right? That's not how it works. It might work in the, in the commercial world for something like eventually, but not in the sport world. You have to have approval and support of your government and your national Olympic committee and your national federation and your international federation. That is the system. We didn't make that up. That's just how it works. But it has huge advantages too. So, to, but to make that work and to make obstacle healthy, OCR healthy, we all need to pitch in and make it work. The very, very healthy sports, everyone is involved with their national federation in a country. Every single person in the sport, without exception. They're the really healthy sports. Now, as long as people fight that, you're just fighting against yourself. So thank you guys for being involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, I don't know, how much did we pay for ours, Colin? I think it's like 11, like 11 pounds for a year and a half, wasn't it, for our renewal? So it's... it's 12 pounds 50, I think. Yeah, so it's like year nothing. And a half, nothing. It costs absolutely nothing, really, like a pound yeah, a fish month and chips. To, to join. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a, not yeah. Without a pint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's why we're trying within like our own community and stuff to just push people to sign up. Do you know, it, it costs absolutely nothing. The benefits you get from it, I mean, some of the discounts that UKOSF 
can generate you is brilliant. You know, I've saved more than what I've paid through a year's membership. So it's like, yeah. a, it's a no brainer. Yeah. And they're not, yeah. they're making zero money. No federation mm. does. There is not a federation in the obstacle system in all 110 countries. Not one of them makes money. Not one. We all, we've all, we all spend our time, education, experience, resources, and brain damage doing this for free. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it should be because otherwise it, because that's non-vested interest, meaning we can't exist for our own gains, unlike the commercial interests which exist, guess what, for their own gains because that's what they are. But that's their, that's their goal and that's their charter. The corporation's job is to make money. That's why they're for profit. And that's what they should do. So if, this, if the whole system is healthy, you have the for-profit interests making money, fantastic. They can bring better events forward. Um, and then the non-profits making enough money to exist comfortably uh, and then putting any extra money right back into the sport. That's how the system should work well uh, and supporting each other. So what, I, what, I, what really disappoints me is when the vested interests fight against the idea that there should be representation through the federation system and they create all sorts of strange language around they don't have the right, uh, they can't do that, we own the sport, there can only be one championships. I mean, all this is bullshit. The um, a healthy sport is diverse and vibrant with lots of options and opportunities. Mm. Yeah, totally agree with you. So the good things, like altitude, I'm thrilled about altitude because it's super fun, uh, really fun to watch. And uh, it's quite difficult, by the way. If anyone decides to do it, um, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging. I think the adventure racing side of the world, well, we know they love it. Dave Ashley, US adventure racer, got, a bron got the bronze medal. And I'm not surprised. I mean, it was, it was the people, the, there was an ultra runner was in the men. There was an ultra runner was first, a specialist, I mean, from ultra running. Um, an obstacle course racer was second and an adventure racer was third. And this is exactly what I wanted to see. Same in the women. The first woman was a ultra runner turned, no, trail runner turned obstacle athlete. Second was a uh, ultra runner turned obstacle athlete. It's kind of like John Alden, right? It's kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. So you see this very odd mix of people. Dan saw this firsthand. He saw all these different people like uh, Christina, come from out for out running background uh, but learned how to do obstacles and then sandy the woman from uh philippines had been a very good well asia champion trail runner but then turned herself into an obstacle athlete and got a gold medal in the sea games so yeah. different different backgrounds with different specialties and then they actually was just a, an adventure racer who figured out how to do obstacles so you just have no idea who's going to win, mm. which is fantastic. I think that's what I like about obstacle ICI. So many different sort of types of backgrounds can do well as it. You know, that's what. And it's, it's, it's a bit of an equaliser, I think, as well. Because, you know, you can be a good runner, but if you're not very good at a heavy carry, then the person who's going to have a carry can catch you up and then get past you. So there's there's all these different facets that I really like about it. I agree. I, I love the diversity and the constant change. Actually, I think is really important in OCR. Constant innovation. I hear I hear people who have observed other sports or maybe involved in other sports saying, 
or the sport will restrict the sport, meaning the federations will restrict the sport. The opposite is true. Our, our goal in charter is to ensure that the sport remains exactly what it started as, which is an ever-changing, dynamic, innovative sport. So the courses, the, the obstacles, everything should be, in, I believe, should be constantly moving and changing and adapting, which is the nature of it, right? It's supposed to be unexpected and unusual and exciting. If you, if you restricted a sport like OCR um, or any obstacle sport for that matter, if you restricted and said it has to be this way, that would absolutely work against it. That'd be a terrible idea. The, the best way to do it is um, embody and encourage innovation and change. That's just the nature of it. It's what it should be because that's what makes it exciting. It's like all of a sudden someone in Holland comes up with this novel thing. You go, oh, that's fun. I want to try that. And you see that all the time. That's what we want to see. That's actually what, this, what we as, a, as the federations want to do is continue pushing for innovation and change and making it dynamic and fun. It doesn't mean you can't have set stuff. Like, like athletics, like the 100 meters is the 100 meters. And guess what you can do with that? You can have records. But trail running and mountain running and out running, wherever they happen to be, whatever they happen to do. It's like mountain biking within cycling. You've got track cycling, set, mountain biking, always changes. Or gravel, whatever it is, you know, all that stuff always moves. Same with OCR. There's a few people like records. So for records, you have to have a standard. And the standards are very rigid <laughs> because it is exactly to the millimeter like this. That's what 100 meters is. 100 meters is a set standard. Yeah, it's got to be exactly that. And if it's not exactly that, you can't get a record. No, totally agree. Um, I'm just looking at the timing. I'm really conscious of how long we've been keeping you up because it's sort of, what is it, 10 o'clock in the morning where, where you are at the moment. So it's 2 p.m. now. Oh, is it? Okay. I think you said it was 12, 12 hours. I thought it was 12 hours difference. Yeah. Okay. I was, I was well, I tricked you. I was in Colorado, but now I'm in California. Ah, <laughs> okay. Um, what we like to do is we like to kind of finish off uh, the podcast with four questions that we've asked every single guest that we've had on so so far. They're, they're not very, uh, well, we, we quite enjoy them. We've had some good answers from them so uh, the first question is um what is your favorite brand of running gear favorite brand of running gear probably going to go to shoes yeah because i have a whole career in shoes <laughs> <laughs> running shoe design and manufacturing um i've become quite partial to uh, ultra a-l-t-r-a yeah ultra zero drop yeah zero drop always been on the zero drop thing and i like the wide toe box so I, I like them they fit my foot and i find them they don't interfere with my gait running gait so i like ultra yeah i think um quite a few people who interact with the wild runners have used them now as well they seem really popular um so the next question is uh, i'm looking forward to your answer to this one actually um, if you were stuck on a desert island, you can run around the island to keep you fit, but you can take one other piece of exercise equipment with you. What would that one bit of equipment be? Uh, swim goggles. To swim off the island or to, to fish? Yeah, swim, catch fish, look at the coral. <laughs> yeah. Escape. <Brilliant>. Yeah. 
I thought you were going to say a kayak then. That's what I thought yeah. you were going to come up with. Um, okay, so the next question is, um, when you go out for a run or, you know, you do some exercise, you know, what do you typically listen to? I listen to nature. Yeah. Yeah, right. no, no electronic assistance needed. Yeah. Good, good answer. Um, and then the last question is, uh, what one bit of advice would you give to a brand new runner? A brand new runner? Run slowly. <laughs> <laughs> run, you hear in this, run. Colin? I, am, yeah, I, am. Uh, I do my run, easy runs. I do actually, my easy runs, mate. Yeah, no, I've got a better advice. Uh, run with variety. Run somewhere that, that keeps you uh, interested. Because if you don't do that, you're probably going to get bored and you might get injured. Repetition is terrible for running, meaning uh, if you run the same uh, route every time, probably going to get bored and you might get injured. Better to, to be have a lot of variety in your running diet. So I, I actually do this uh, because I know as, a, as, I get in, as I become a sexagenarian that the repetition over 60 years of running is um, 50 years of running uh, starts to wear on you. The trick is always be dynamic. Actually, there's a physical thing involved. If you run on uh, footpaths or roads, your gait variation uh, is minimal kind of the same movement pattern every stride. If you run purposefully on things that are not uh, straight and level, which is trails and not trails, if you run across like fields and jump fences and stuff, which would be obstacle racing, um, you're a lot less likely to get injured and you're going to have way more fun doing it. So you can, when I was, uh, I had this period where I was doing a lot of, well, develop the world, a uh, global coaching program in 40 countries for a Newton running company um, we would make the runners basically do obstacle stuff made them better runners and would avoid injury so if we went out for a run we took our running group out we would i would run them across things like exactly like you would in obstacle racing which would be ditches and logs and fences and make them do stuff that they're not used to they didn't like it to start with <laughs> it's like, we want to run yeah but you know what if you keep running on that flat straight road every time you will get injured oh and guess what yes you are injured so did that work out well for you no it didn't well let's try something different so variety keep it keep changing it all the time like that. Dan, you got anything else you want to no man i think i think we're all we're all wrapped up yeah, thanks for, for coming on here. It's been really interesting chatting to you and hearing everything you've been up to. And and I hope you have great success on Everest. I'm looking forward to seeing the, the pictures and everything on that. Is that before, well, thank before, you. before Morocco, Everest? No, Everest is November. Okay. Everest is November. I'm not sure if Morocco will be this year or next year. Ah, okay. Uh, it'll, it'll depend on lots of things, you know, these long as Dan Soar on yeah. Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> they're not short timelines to put these events on. It's quite complex. We're getting involved with the governments too. So in Tanzania, um, I'm not sure, Dan, if you knew this, We uh, Rob and Dave met with the Prime Minister. Uh, okay. And then we met with the Minister for Sport, Minister for Tourism, uh, and then the heads of the Army and the Navy. 
or senior people in the army and navy. Uh, and that was uh, for support for OCR and obstacle sports in Tanzania, including altitude and uh, regional championships. We created an East Africa region. Um, so we're going to bring more obstacle sports into Tanzania, including adventure racing, obstacle course racing, altitude OCR, and some of the shorter stuff. That's typically, that's part of what we're doing with this is when we get to these uh, countries like Tanzania and surrounding countries, which often can't do stuff by themselves. One of the functions of altitude OCR is that we bring enough resources and money into the country that we help elevate this or bring the sport up, uh, give it enough profile that the governments get involved and then, then bring it to the region. And so we're, Rob and Dave are actually part of our sport development committee at World Obstacle. And part of their charter is to do exactly that. So we use them as mechanisms to, to elevate and bring more sport to more people. And uh, this is my soapbox, so I get to say one more thing, I hope. <laughs> uh, um, a lot of people misunderstand sport. They think it's a bunch of old farts trying to control stuff. It's completely the opposite. Um, our system is we want the youngest, most um, passionate people to guide the sport. That's what it's for. It's a, it's a system of representation. We simply provide systems and structure for people to represent themselves and the sport. Um, the ultimate goal, the overall goal, is to make positive change in the world through sport. Dan knows this. He saw it happen in Tanzania. So exactly what was happening. 450 locals affected 10,000 people, supported 10,000 people in the region financially for a year. Now that's making change through sport. Uh, elevated women, gave them opportunities as guides. Uh, we did some cleanup. We did all these things that we don't really talk that much about, but that's what sport should do. Just make the world a better place. And we know sport is a good way to do it because it's healthy, um, people are positive, it bonds people from different countries and cultures and backgrounds and politics vaporize. We saw this uh, in very obvious things like with uh, our Russian and US um, athletes, they became close friends. You know, politically, it's not very friendly, but person to person, absolutely fantastic. A woman from Iraq uh, who comes from a country where women's rights are not the same as most of the rest of the world. And uh, she was you know, running in athletic attire carrying a flag promoting good things for the world so these these are things that sport does and we believe can do really well and that's ultimately what we're doing yeah totally agree mm. yeah i think that's a great uh well i think that's a brilliant way to to end this ian yeah, i think i think you couldn't have said that any better to be honest with you <laughs> Well, thank you guys. It's such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Um, yeah, thanks for coming. And hopefully, you can edit it down to three minutes of useful information. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll work some magic, don't worry. No, thank you very much for coming on, Ian. Really appreciate your time. Right. Yeah, cheers. My thanks pleasure. Ian. Thank you.